0: Join me then and turn to Matthew chapter 19. We're back, and Lord willing, we'll be here for a little while. As we pick up here in Matthew 19, why are we in Matthew 19? Because when we left, we were in Matthew 18, and before that, 17 and 16, and I can't count backwards too quickly. But you get the idea, we're just marching right through this book and this glorious picture of our Christ and the gospel. And today, I titled this morning's message, and really for next week as well, Jesus' focus on the family taking that term as we've heard before, because He does. He focuses on blood, human relationships over these next 15 verses. We can't get into all of those 15 verses, so we're going to, Lord willing, namely talk about marriage and divorce and get through verse 9. But there is this shift where we've been talking about the spiritual family and the spiritual kingdom, but that poses questions then. How do I relate to my physical family? How does that work? Well, that's what Jesus speaks to here in these first 15 verses of the 19th chapter. But as I noted this morning, we're going to focus namely on this first nine verses, which deals with the topic of divorce, namely really the topic of marriage, but through that question of divorce. I take you to be my beloved wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, lead, and cherish until death do us part. Those are familiar words, aren't they? Perhaps many of you have uttered them yourself, wedding vows. It's such a marvelous day, that wedding day, to see the delight on the groom's face as his bride comes down the aisle, and to see the bride beaming as she walks and marches up to her husband-to-be. It makes everything just seem the way it's so perfectly planned and so beautifully adorned. It just seems like something out of a fairy tale, doesn't it? And as they leave after being wed, and they go out those doors, and then we are all cheering and clapping and rejoicing in the new Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, it just has all the appearance that they're going to leave those doors, they're going to leave the church, and it's just going to be happily ever after. Everything seems like a fairy tale. And then we hit real life. And of course, the statistics tell us it's not really a fairy tale. Though divorces are thankfully not as common as they were, say, in the height of it in our society in the 1980s, it was the 1980s where we reached that inglorious threshold of where 50% of the marriages end in divorce. The stat today is more like 40% of those who are first married will divorce. And yet, actually, if you tabulate or total all of the marriages in the United States, still 50% of them end in divorce if you're including all of those for those folks that have been divorced multiple times. But that's, those stats just seem so jarring, so shocking, as you go back and rewind and imagine that bride and groom vowing to one another forever, at least in this life. They look so in love, they look so delighted in one another, they want nothing more than to be together. I mean, the point is when no one gets up on that stage or to the altar, so to speak, and says those vows, I hope, thinking in the back of their mind, oh, I bet we're going to be the 50% that gets divorced. This whole thing's just 50-50, so we'll see. I hope not. Yet it's true. So many delighted, happy couples don't stay happy or at least together for very long. Well, why not? Well, there's a host of reasons. We'll see some of that here in this text. But Our society, which has infected the church, has cheapened marriage. We've made it about ourselves. We've made marriage about personal attainment. We've made marriage about personal fulfillment. Where our text here, Matthew 19, Jesus calls all of those in the kingdom, these are the redeemed, these are those bought out of sin, those bought out of our rebellion, and we are bought into the plan and purpose of God, and Jesus calls us to rediscover God's design in marriage rediscover the purpose and awesomeness of marriage. And you do that by seeing His design behind it. I mean, God made it, didn't He? Marriage was His idea. And that's where Jesus returns us as kingdom people. This morning, we're going to hear the kingdom call about marriage. And in short, it's this. You need to know if you're a kingdom person, a follower of Christ, God makes a marriage. God creates marriage. And I don't mean just in Genesis when he instituted it for humanity, but every marriage that unfolds past Genesis 2, a genuine marriage was genuinely put together by God. And so then, our call as king to people is to honor and protect those marriages around you, including, of course, your own. Do not fracture, do not become a wedge in a God made union. And we see that unfold in our text again, we're only looking at verses 1 to 9 with these two key truths, namely about marriage and divorce. And the first one is this, is that God makes each marriage, and He does it for life. God makes each marriage, and He makes it for life. Verses 1 to 6, the first reason we should be so focused to honor marriage, to protect marriages, to cultivate our own marriage, and all of those around us, is this this is God's doing. God makes a marriage. This is, you could say, his creation. And he has designs in those things that he's made. And we'll see, he makes them permanent. Marriage is for life. And again, that's by God's good creation design. That's where we'll spend most of the time in these verses this morning. But this teaching on marriage is actually prompted not by marriage itself, but by a question about divorce, the splitting up of the marital union. That question arises by the Pharisees. Remember them? Those are the. Jewish Bible scholars that are given a bit to self-righteousness, and they tend to be hung up on the letter of the law as as opposed to the spirit of it. And they pose this question about divorce in verse 3. But before we get to that, we have to look at this transitional verses, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 19. Let's look at that. Matthew 19 begins this way, "...now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there." Now, several times in Matthew's gospel, a statement like this, namely, Jesus finished these sayings, a statement like that occurs several times in the gospel, and it marks really the end of an extended teaching, which then marks a transition onto something else. We we see it most prominently at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Go see the end of that in Matthew chapter 7. And then you see a transition. Jesus gets back on the move. He's in a new setting and doing a new teaching or new healings. And of course, that is indeed what we see here. He's been teaching us all about the church, hasn't He? In Matthew 16, of course, 17 as well. And then as we're on on into Matthew 18, He's told us all about how we relate to as a spiritual family, that we are as the kingdom of God, as we are followers of Christ. We've been adopted into the family of God. And so you need to relate to one another as brothers and sisters. If your brother sins against you, here's what you go do, right? And so after those teachings, now we have this transition and things shift a bit. And really things shift and fast forward quite a bit that Matthew doesn't note here. If you compare Matthew's gospel and chronologically align them with the other three, You understand that as you get to the end of Matthew 18 and we go into Matthew 19, Matthew has fast forwarded some six months of Jesus' ministry. He has glossed over things like Jesus' healing of the blind man in John chapter 9, or the healing or the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. He's glossed over the healing of 10 lepers in Luke chapter 17. All of that Matthew just captures with the phrase, and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. I just set that before you to remind you, the Gospels are not an exhaustive account of Jesus' earthly life. Each Gospel writer has to prove selective, right? They have to be intentional about what to include or what not to include. For as John says at the end of his Gospel, right, all of the books in the world cannot contain all of the marvelous deeds Jesus has done. So then, why was Matthew selective like this? Why does the story pick up here? Why does he move to this question about divorce? And indeed, we see Jesus turns his focus, especially in his first 15 chapters, he turns his focus onto the family, onto blood relations. As we noted, we've been talking about all about the church. We've been talking about the spiritual family of brothers and sisters, the priority of this new spiritual family above all others where does that leave our bloodline family? What are we to make of our daddies and mommies and blood brothers and sisters and cousins and aunts and uncles? How do we relate to them? Do they not matter now? Are they just been trumped by the spiritual kingdom and spiritual family? King Jesus, what am I supposed to do about my family? What's your plan for this? What's God's plan? And really, it's this tension or thought that, that carries Jesus' teaching through this chapter. How do kingdom people think about, and we first see it about marriage, where we're looking today, how does he think about, how are we to think about singleness or celibacy? And then we'll look in verses 13 through 15, how are we to think about children? How does that fit into God's kingdom spiritual purposes? Now I noted this week we're just going to go through verse 9, so we're going to focus on marriage and namely divorce, and then Lord willing next week we'll pick up singleness and then children as well but it's this transition. We've been talking about a spiritual family. Where does that leave my physical one? Well, our King is telling us right here, and He deals first with that predominant earthly union and relationship, marriage. But His teaching here on marriage is prompted first by a trap, a setup given from the Pharisees, this question they posed to Him. Look at verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by asking is it lawful to divorce man's wife for any cause? Again, this is not an honest inquiry, is it? They're testing him by this. They're setting him up. This question was not at random just to satisfy their curiosity. This question was the pinpoint of a, an, a raging debate among Jewish scholars and teachers and schools of thought. They were all wrangled about what justifies a divorce. On the far more conservative side, one Jewish school said the only ground for divorce would be marital infidelity, adultery. Well, another school, and this was the one that would eventually predominate in Judaism, you could divorce your wife truly for any cause, almost. Basically for any reason. Later rabbis taught that even if your wife burned your breakfast, that you had grounds to leave her. So what side are you on, Jesus? What's your take? Where do you stand on this raging debate? They're trying to push Jesus to one side or the other to make sure He has a bunch of enemies to get Him in hot water. Maybe with the Pharisees themselves, because He's lax with Scripture, they would conclude. Or maybe it's with the opponents. Or maybe it's with Herod. Remember, Herod was being wrangled by John the Baptist about his divorce. Well, in response to their trap, Jesus turns to Genesis. He goes back to the beginning. He goes back to God's good creation, and He answers the divorce question by telling us again what marriage is. That'll answer the divorce question for you. So, He goes back to the beginning when God made marriage. Here's Jesus' response. Look at verse 4. He answered, "'Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh?' have you not read Jewish scholars? Of course they had. Of course they'd read this. These were the top-notch Bible scholars of Judaism. They, were, they called themselves the guides to the blind. But their questions seemed to uncover their inability to understand the Scriptures and from this as well, Jesus surfaces as that, the authoritative teacher of the Word of God. For what Jesus does, he quotes Genesis. He goes back to Scripture. I mean, this is interesting. He's the Messiah. He is God the Son having come down to earth, right? He could just open his mouth. You want to know what God thinks? I can tell you because I am him, right? But he doesn't do that here. What does he do? He goes back to the beginning. He goes to the authoritative statements of God in Scripture to prove his point. First, Jesus recalls God's design in the very beginning. He alludes to Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 where God is said to make mankind and he made them male and female. You see God purposed, God designed humankind into two genders or sexes. Male and female. Those two sexes were stamped on you or made by our creator. So, you see, your gender in that sense is not something you choose for yourself. It's not something you just feel deep inside of you. It's stamped upon you. It's designed into you by your creator. By your very, very biology, He made you. And so, there'd be only two options, male or female. There's no spectrum. There's no sliding scale. There's no fluidity. There's no third or fourth or fifth or however many options Facebook gives you. Quoting Genesis, Jesus says, he goes back to the beginning, to history. He who created them made them male and female. Almost as an aside, you notice how unhesitatingly Jesus goes back to the scriptures in Genesis and calls them history. Genesis is written like history. If you want to know more about that, go and hear the messages we did on Genesis some five years ago. Genesis is written as history in the Hebrew language, and Jesus affirms and quotes it like it is history. Imagine. Our Lord understood that those opening chapters of Genesis, they're not fable. They're not allegory. They're not legend. It's a retelling of history with insight from God's mind about what He was up to what He intended from the very beginning to make and to divide humanity into two sexes, male and female. But to this, isn't it interesting? He starts with the very design in the sexes, the genders, to then prompt the question, well, why did God make two genders then? Why did He make two sexes? And Jesus makes that immediately clear as He goes to His next quotation. Look at Matthew verse 5 of chapter 19. And said, so who's the said there? Well, it's the one who made them male and female from verse 4. And said, so God, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So in verse 4, the God who designed two genders then said what to do with the two genders. Marriage. Marriage. Why did He make two sexes, male and female? For marriage. This was God's intent and design. Why didn't He make us like the angels? For marriage. That's why He made some male and some female. That was God's purpose from the very beginning in this. He designed males to leave His parents, namely His father, who is a male, by the way, right, and his mother, who is a female, to be coupled with his wife, who is a female. It's strange in these days. We have to be so explicit about this, isn't it? Such that the two are different, male and females, are not the same, but they are made complementary, aren't they? To fit together as one flesh for this lifelong covenant and partnership for life. And so it should go without saying, then, God designs and decrees only one combination for marriage, a man with a woman. And that's the astounding thing about marriage, that you have two entirely independent individuals, a man and a woman, and yet through marriage, says, they actually become one. This oneness, oneness in flesh, expresses a, a union in body, course, that unique and exclusive coming together in marriage, that that's the very way God designed to, to have mankind to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But the oneness is more than this too. It expresses a spiritual, a relational oneness We're two different people with different strengths, different weaknesses, different needs, different abilities, and different roles, they come together complementing one another. You have this symbiotic union where they become stronger and more complete together than they are apart. That's why God's good design. I mean, you go back and remember Genesis 1 and 2. When, Gen- when God made everything in Genesis 1, what's the common refrain after every day? You hear, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then when you hear the end of all of it, he says, it's very good. And then you run into Genesis 2, I believe it's verse 18. You find something, the first thing that's not good. And what is it? Adam's by himself. It's not good for man to be alone. Again, by God's very good design, He intended to put a man with a woman in marriage. That's His very purpose in the genders. That's how they complete and complement one another. So if that be the very purpose and why He made male and female for marriage, then, Jesus turns to speak to that initial question about divorce, finally, as we come to verse 6. He's laying all of the theological groundwork to bring you to this conclusion. Look at verse 6. It's powerful. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. A marriage is a weighty thing. That is, despite how prevalent marriage is, I mean, many of us are married, most of us have been or will be, Many of us attended wedding after wedding, year after year. It's prevalent. It's ubiquitous. Marriages are everywhere such that, what do we do? We take for granted. We presume upon them. We we don't think twice about them. We, We don't realize, like, what an incredible thing marriage actually is. And a couple truths make that so clear from what Jesus says here. First, notice this. Notice what he says. God is the one who unifies or makes a marriage. Do you see that in verse 6? What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. You realize every marriage, not just the one in Genesis 2, but every marriage that unfolds after that, says here Jesus says, God joins them, God unites them, God is the one who actually makes them married. Your marriage, in that sense, know this it was no accident. In that sense, if you're married now, you didn't marry the wrong person. Now, that is not to say that you didn't make unwise decisions, or maybe that you got married too quickly, or that you married an unbeliever, or you married for the wrong reasons and the wrong motives. But here it stands, regardless of even all of that, if you are married and truly married, That is, one man to one woman, taking vows, committing yourself in marriage to one another exclusively for life, that is a union created by God. Now, does that mean your marriage is going to be easy? No. Is it going to be all-fulfilling and all-satisfying? No. Those are kind of things reserved for our relationship with God. What we long for one day, our marriage on earth is just a picture of what we anticipate but know this, your marriage now on earth was made by God, and so then it's worth fighting for. God made this union. He gifted you your spouse. This almighty wise creator gifted you your spouse. Your spouse is the will of God for you. He in His perfect wisdom, He knows what you need best. He knows what will be your best compliment. He knows what's for your good. And in all of providence, he's given you this spouse. That is a gift from the Lord to you. And that takes us to the next amazing part of marriage here. Again, in verse 6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. You know what that means then. Marriage is for life. Let no man separate. That's how He addresses the divorce question. He says, let no man put it asunder. Let no man split it up. Why? Because God made it. God doesn't join men and women in marriage so that we can just break it up. He unites them for life. And so because your marriage is to be for life, As you're married together in this broken world, what does that mean? Life's still going to be hard, even married. And marriage will make some things even more hard, it seems. But it's that lifelong commitment, those vows, those promises we made before God and to one another, that's what serves us so well when things get really hard. Understand, marriage is the one God-ordained relationship on earth between two people, a man and a woman, bound by God and their promise to one another, It's that one relationship designed to withstand everything else. It's bound by a promise. The marriage holds together when all other relationships would fall apart, when all other relationships would fall out or back out. Marriage is designed to withstand all of that. You are one, and you are one by God's making for life for all of life, till death do you part. So that means marriage is for the good times and it's for the hard times. That's why we have those in the vows, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and in health. Marriage is for all the times of life. That's the way God designed it, to be permanent. If you go into it always thinking and calculating, man, I don't know if I'm really willing to try and make this work, or... Maybe I should just move on or or, this isn't happily ever after. I need out of this. Listen, by design, your marriage only works as you lean into that commitment and those vows just stick together. In that way, your marriage is like a muscle. If you don't use it, if you don't lean into it, if you don't exercise it, if you don't depend on that commitment and those vows, if you don't care for it and serve one another... It may be there. You may have a marriage muscle, but it's going to be an anemic one, in total atrophy. In other words, you've got to work at this oneness. And you must work in it, lean into it. That's what it's designed for. That's where a strong marriage comes from. So if you're married this morning, you need to pursue and lean into your marriage relationship. That's the relationship that must have the highest priority in your life. Is that reflected in yours, how you prioritize your time with your spouse, or do you just take it for granted? Isn't that easy? You know the commitment's there, you know they're always going to be there, so you start to presume upon it. You take it for granted. You don't work at it. You don't work at really living like one together, step-in-step advancing, being united, being on the same page. Caring and holding one another up. You just function. That's not His design for marriage. Because get this. To oppose a marriage, of course, or to neglect a marriage that God has made, which might look like not investing in your own marriage, to do that is to oppose the will of God. Fight to keep that marriage together and for life. God made it to be lifelong. Okay, then. Does that mean there's no room for divorce? Does God ever permit divorce? Well, if we does, we know this. Divorce is evidently not plan A, such that if a marriage breaks, we can know then there had to be sin somewhere in there. If God makes each marriage for life, only sin can break a marriage apart. See that in verses 7 to 9. So the call for us is to keep sin and bitterness and unforgiveness out of your marriage. Again, while divorce isn't part of God's good design for marriage, he doesn't intend to wed people together so we can just break them up. Does that mean they can never be separated ever? And this is where the Pharisees, they're getting they're picking up what Jesus is laying down, right? And they're thinking to themselves, oh, you think no divorce? Oh, I got a text for you, Jesus, Mr. Interpreter of Scripture. I'm sure they said it just like that. <laughs> did you forget Deuteronomy 24, O oh, wise teacher? Look at verse 7. They, the Pharisee, said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Ha, ha, ha. If divorce is so permanent, then why did Moses command husbands to divorce their faithless wives and send them away? Answer me that. Again, the scripture they have in mind is Deuteronomy 24. And we do read this there. I'll quote part of it to you. It says in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency, note that word, in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, dot, dot, dot. So now the rabbis interpreting that, they were all wrangling over, well, what is that indecency? What is the thing that then makes divorce possible? And again, some rabbis said, well, that indecency must be marital and That's what Moses had in mind. Other Jewish leaders, remember the other school? They contend basically any unfavorable thing, done by the wife it would be grounds to let her go, from burning the toast or not aging so well. Seriously, rabbis talk about that as justification for separation. That's where this whole interchange began. So, Jesus, where do you stand on the spectrum? Should a man divorce his wife over infidelity, or there be other things that are justifiable for, for divorce too? But before he answers, Jesus goes back, again, the master teacher of Scripture, he goes back to Deuteronomy to clarify something. Now, remember their question. Look at verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, Jesus' response, Note what he says. Verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So note that. The Pharisees said, oh, Moses commanded this. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Mm -mm. Moses didn't command anything about divorce. He allowed it. And it's true. If you go read Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses does not command divorce at all. Rather, Deuteronomy 24 regulates what's supposed to happen when a divorce has already taken place. Namely, in this scenario where a woman gets divorced, and she marries another man, and then that man leaves her, or maybe that second husband dies, and so she finds herself single again, can that first husband go back and marry her? That's what Deuteronomy 24 is actually about, and the answer is no. It doesn't have to do with what are the grounds for divorce, but isn't it interesting to find the Jewish rabbis, they're going there to try and look for and find those grounds, justifications, technicalities for divorce, for ending unions that God designed from the beginning for life. That is, they're looking for outs, it seems, technicalities out of God's will. And isn't that a curious thing that we as religious people do? That's how blind in our sin we can be in our rebellion. That is, instead of just opposing God openly, We try and veil our rebellion. We we try to find technicalities and justifications in the Bible to do what we really want to do. That is, we search hard in his word. We comb his word. Why? So we can better know God's design and what his will is? No, we're doing so so we can justify what our will is. We cloak our rebellion with religious, pious language. A proof text Bible verse. It's a great deception of our own hearts, our way of hiding sin from ourselves. But again, Jesus, why would Moses even speak of, I'll concede, permitting divorce if God never would allow it? Hmm? So it's true, God nowhere commands divorce. And yet, are there any circumstances where it's okay and why? Well, again, we look at verse 8. Jesus said to them, "'Because of your hardness of heart.'" Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. From the beginning, it was not so. In other words, why would divorce ever be permissible? Why would it ever be allowed? Because of sin. That's why. Divorce is no command. It actually works against God's creation design. But divorce is a God-given concession. A concession that acknowledges sin in this world, the brokenness of this world, And a sin that acknowledges our hearts are hard. It's a concession that God may even grant, but He does so because our hearts get embittered, hardened by sin. Again, divorce in that sense was never God's original design. But God understands once sin and rebelliousness and wrong and bitterness came into this world, even at the very beginning, as it corrupted this world, sin corrupted marriage too such that some marriages cannot stay together. Some wrongs seem too wrong to forgive, or at least to forget. Divorce would never be God's plan A, but it is permissible, as our God compassionately knows the troubles of this broken world, filled with broken promises, broken relationships, and broken hearts. But understand, if there was no sin, there would never need to be a divorce. Behind every divorce is sin, bitterness, and unforgiveness. Whether it was your sin or not, if you're in a, in a divorce or been through one, sin is present somewhere. That's what's caused this severing. And so though marriages are made, they're designed to be for life, they're made to stick together, some sins, some violations hurt so bad, rupture so deep that there is this concession for divorce. But Jesus notes, the concession is only made under a special circumstance. And look at that. Look at verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, here's the one circumstance he lists, and marries another commits adultery. What's the special circumstance? Infidelity, sexual immorality, marital unfaithfulness. The word that he uses here in verse 9 is the Greek term "porneia," and it just refers, to, in the broadest sense, to sexual acts outside of marriage. That is, Jesus doesn't use the more specific term adultery when he gives this concession. Rather, he, he just in, broadly speaks of any sexual deviancy. Why? What's the point? Because sex is for marriage and only marriage. The marriage union, that bond, is the only relationship strong enough, safe enough to provide the right place and context for a husband and wife to so fully give themselves to one another, to be naked and not ashamed, as we read in Genesis. But all of that's reserved exclusively for your spouse. Such that then, and here's the logic of it, when that trust is broken, When a spouse gives him or herself to someone else who's not their spouse in that special spouse-like way, that trust, those vows, those promises have been dashed by a few fleeting moments of pleasure. And when such a sacred trust has been broken in this world, there's just some offenses that may never fully repair. And in such cases, divorce can be permitted. It's not required. It's not commanded. But it's allowed. But note this, if you divorce, separate from your spouse for any other cause, but that, and we'll talk about one more in a moment, but if you divorce for any other cause, then note what Jesus says in verse 9. Again, he says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. If you divorce your spouse for anything less than sexual morality, Jesus says that when you go and try and marry someone else, you're actually uniting in adultery, Do you catch the logic that Jesus is using here? What's his rationale to make this point? Well, consider, what's he been teaching us about marriage? God does it. It's lifelong. It's made to stick. It's permanent. It's not easily broken and should not be. And so if you go off and separate from your your wife because she burnt your breakfast or because she's a nag or from your husband because he's lazy and he doesn't try anymore and he let himself go, you fill in the blank. And you separate and divorce and then go get married to someone else, Jesus says, hey, listen, you didn't really marry that second person. You're just committing adultery with them. Why? Because that first marriage never ended. It wasn't rightly dissolved or annulled. Now, you take in the whole of Scripture, there appears one other permissible ground for divorce. It's there in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul counsels believers not to force the issue if an unbelieving spouse wants to leave the marriage, if they want a divorce. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15 reads, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not bound. God has called you to peace. Now, just before this, he exhorted the Christians, if your unbelieving spouse wants to stay with you, then you stay together. But if they want to leave, you don't have to force them. You're able to release them if the unbeliever wants a divorce. So abandonment by an unbeliever then... And sexual immorality comprise the only two biblical grounds for divorce. Now, you may be thinking, yikes, does that apply to me then? Did I get divorced when I wasn't supposed to? Have I been in an adulterous relationship this whole time? This is heavy stuff. What am I supposed to do? What you need to do is repent. That's what Christians do. We're not perfect. We acknowledge our sin. We confess it. We plead for grace with Christ. Confess your sins to Jesus. Jesus for treating your first marriage as a small thing. Confess your wrong to your former spouse and to your current spouse because you've brought them into this too. Now, if you're to make it right, if you have remarried, don't make another wrong by going divorcing again and trying to get back with your first spouse. It's too late. You can't go back and restore the things that once were, but you can confess your sins. You can rest on grace And with that renewed resolve, commit to keep your marriage that you do have for life to the glory of God. So then we see, if the grounds for divorce are so narrow, we uncover three things about marriage in summary. First, it's this. God designed marriage to be a lifelong commitment. It shouldn't be broken. Second, that also means it's going to take a lot of grace it's going to take a lot of mercy, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of forbearance to keep that marriage together. You know this. When you're so tightly tied to someone, when you're around them all the time and they're a sinner, oh, and by the way, you are too, you know what's going to happen? Sin. A lot of it. And it hurts deep when it's with someone you care about so much. Any sin then is this risk that to put a wedge in your marriage to separate you well, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to deal with it? Well, think back to the parable we saw in Matthew 18. Will you forgive? Will you show mercy? Show mercy like you've been shown, or are you going to harden your heart like the unforgiving servant? Are you going to hold small grudges when Christ has forgiven all your sin and spared you the eternal wrath of God? Are you going to now harden your heart? A heart that keeps a record of wrongs and hold on to offenses, or one that quickly resurfaces past wrongs and arguments. You know this? That's the one that's just driving a wedge in a marriage that God has made. You need grace. That's what keeps us together. You need forgiveness. You need mercy if the marriage will last. Because third, you got to see this, and this is the glorious truth about marriage. It's the one that Paul explores in Ephesians chapter 5. Why marriage? What is God up to? Even as he designed marriage, he knew there would be the fall and he knew there would be this whole corruption and he knew there'd be all these difficulties in marriages. Why did God even go forward with it then and design it this way? Why did he purpose and design marriage to be so hard and be for life? Why? Because he wanted to give you a picture of how committed he is, how determined he is to love his bride even when she's not very lovely. He wanted to give you an example of what grace and forgiveness looks like. Here's what we read in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And he goes on to say, and he quotes Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then Paul adds this astounding statement. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's why he made marriage. He wanted to show to all the world with the one human permanent relationship how committed he is to his people, that he is a groom who doesn't give up on his bride when she fails him, that he doesn't abandon his wife when she wrongs him, that he doesn't turn his back on her. He doesn't turn his back on you if you're in Christ. He will never desert you. He will never abandon you. He will never regret his love and wonder, oh, did I marry or redeem the wrong person? He will never be unfaithful to his vows to you in Christ. And that's not contingent upon you being pretty. or you keeping yourself pure and righteous and blameless and fit? No, he loves you. He died for you and he sees it through to the very end. He won't desert you. This is the glory of the gospel. That's why he made marriage to give us on earth some picture, some handle on something that's so permanent, but only even dimly mirrors his permanent love for his people. And so, your marriages play some, may it be, small part to show to the world that kind of love. A love filled with forgiveness, filled with grace, so then it can have an unbending commitment. It's a love that loves to the end. It's a love in that way that's eternal. It's a love that shows forth Christ's love for his church. Let's pray that our marriages. We put this on display. Let's pray together.